to extend my thanks to the elders this morning. <clears throat> I had to call an audible because of my uh, issues with my back, so thank you, uh, David and Hadley. Um, Ezekiel 37, I'm going to be reading the first uh, 14 verses, but before we go to the Lord, hear from the Lord, let's go to him one, once more in prayer. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, our Heavenly Father, we come again before you. We thank you for this, your word. We thank you that you have condescended to speak to us, to give us what we need to know for life and godliness. Lord, it is perfect and it is complete. It is therein that you have revealed yourself to us and you've shown us what we would need to know for that life and godliness. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to believe this word as we hear it and help us to base our lives upon it. And Lord God, to find comfort as we hear it. Father, we pray that you would help us to uh, drive out all of those things that would arrest our attention, that would distract us from this, your word. Lord, help us to be attentive in this hour. Help us to uh, hear you as you speak to us from it. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Ezekiel 37, please give your full attention now. This is the word of our God. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones, and led me around among them. And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you. You shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you. And will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you. And you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded and as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, quaking, shaking. And the bones came together, bone to its bone. And it looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them. But there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prof breath prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied, as he had commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived, and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up, and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from the graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live. I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it, declares the Lord. 
for the reading of God's word. May he indeed add his blessing to it. Last week, I recall Dr. Mitchell educating me on some flowers uh, that he had seen in a a botanical garden. Um, It was quite fascinating, but I confess I don't know much about flowers or about botany. But over over the past few weeks, we have been looking at perhaps the most beautiful flower that the world has ever known. I'm speaking, of course, of the tulip. The flower of God's powerful, sovereign grace. This flower of grace, TULIP, of course, is an acronym, as you know, for the distinctives of our church, for Presbyterian churches historically. Um, And at Providence here, we are unashamedly, we embrace Reformed theology, as it is reflected in our standards, the Westminster Confession of Faith. Reformed theology, as you know, is made up of numerous components, but at its most basic level... Reformed theology is generally understood as reflecting uh, two things, covenant theology and Calvinism, soteriologically, covenant theology and Calvinism. And so that flower of grace, the tulip, stands for the points of Calvinism, you will recall, which were constructed in response to the five points of Arminianism at that synod 500 years ago, the Synod of Dort. And these five points, these five petals of that flower Tulip has also been called the doctrines of grace because this tulip brings into sharp focus the sovereign grace of God in the gospel. They sharply describe for us the truth that God saves sinners. God saves sinners. These doctrines of grace drive home the point that salvation is not a cooperative effort between God and man, but rather salvation is is exclusively of the Lord, of our powerful, merciful Lord. And man is but the mere recipient of that. Remember that these five points stand as a unit. They stand together logically and scripturally. And logically and scripturally, each point is interdependent on the other points, on the other petals of the flower. They stand as a unified declaration of what? Of praise to God for salvation by sovereign grace. And so let me remind you again, take a moment to remind you what we are looking at uh, in these five petals of the flower and set the context once more before we get into the fourth petal in our series, the fourth of the five petals of the tulip. Uh, You'll recall that the letter T, the, the tulip stands for total depravity. This doctrine that teaches us from the scripture that man as a fallen creature in Adam is infected With every faculty of his soul, he's infected with sin. It touches all of the parts of man. And he is helpless under sin's dominion and is spiritually dead. This is the testimony of God's word throughout. throughout. We've looked at many, many passages the past number of weeks. From Ezekiel's dry bones, not just bones, but dry bones, to the Gospel of John, recall, that says that everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. To Ephesians, it says you were dead in your trespasses and sins. To Titus, who said that we are, uh, the letter to Titus, uh, Paul said we are foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to passions. So according to the scriptures, the fallen mind of man is darkened and his heart hates God and it loves evil. 
And due to this extensive power that we see of sin in the soul, remember we looked briefly at uh, that book that Martin Luther wrote as a... stated this emphatically, right? Remember that book, The Bondage of the Will? It's in that book that that Luther argued that man's will is not free, but is in bondage to a fallen, sinful nature. And therefore, if left to itself, would always choose what? Against God. Would always choose the evil. Man will always choose according to his will. Proverbs tells us that a dog will return to its vomit. And if you've ever had a dog or known someone with a dog, you know that this is true. That's what dogs do. Why? Because it's in their nature to do so. The dog chooses to do so according to its nature, according to its will. And so, similarly, the sinner, in accordance with their sinful nature, chooses to avoid God, to flee from God. Remember in Scripture, in Romans 3, we saw it read, no one seeks after God. No one. Man's will is... Not to choose God, right? And if you give a sinner every benefit of the doubt, every promise, every reason, every explanation, why it's in his interest to trust in Christ and to turn to Christ, to place his faith in Christ, his free choice will consistently be in accordance with what? Regardless of all that that we give him, it will be in accordance with his sin-loving, God-hating nature. He will say, no, no, no Christ for me. The unregenerate sinner. Jeremiah uh, rightly declares that uh, evil human nature can no more act contrary to that nature than a leopard can change its spots. And so the will of man is not free. It is not equally able to choose either God or sin. It is in bondage to his evil nature. And so once we understand the seriousness and the depth of man's sin... We'll understand why the answer to such depravity can only be found in the powerful medicine of sovereign grace. And praise God, it can be found. Right? You think of common conditions of man. Someone has strep throat, right? Strep throat. What can help that person? Well, penicillin, maybe some Advil or aspirin. But cancer of the larynx has some of the same symptoms. And it really requires a far more radical treatment than Advil. A more radical disease requires a more radical treatment that corresponds to it. And this disease of total depravity, this very downer of a picture that Scripture paints throughout, requires what? requires a radical treatment that only the powerful, radical medicine of sovereign grace can provide. The medicine of sovereign grace was conceived in eternity past through uh, unconditional election of the Father. It was developed to perfection and limited atonement of the Son. And it is applied by the Holy Spirit straight to the heart of the dead elect so that hearing and bring them to life, right? Remember, bones coming to life by the word of his power. It's an incredible picture of what happens to you and I, brothers and sisters, and all who God calls and breathes upon and calls them and brings them to life in that calling. How do I know that this still takes place? Still, the Lord is still doing this. How do I know that? The same reason that you know it. Because he brought you to life and he brought me to life. He still 
speaks and dead dry bones come to life for him. And so the father chose those who would say he would save unconditionally, right? That is not, not, not conditioned or according to any foreseen faith or merit in them, but according to what? His own good pleasure to the praise of his glorious grace. And then God the Son came to accomplish the good pleasure of the Father by dying on the cross as a substitute, thereby what? Redeeming the elect. It's important for us to understand that the biblical, the reformed view of the atonement is not primarily concerned with its extent. The extent of the atonement is secondary uh, concern for reformed Christians. The primary concern for reformed Christians is over the nature of the atonement, right? It's over the nature. What did the atonement accomplish? What was accomplished in the atonement? What was accomplished on the cross? The biblical message of the atonement is that it was a substitutionary atonement and that it actually redeemed a people, actually fully. Remember, we looked at Galatians 3, 13, that says Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. And a good way to, 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 to view this and, and, and see what this is all about, picture, if you will, a man standing in a courtroom. He's been brought from his cell and he's on trial before the judge. He's there shackled, um, perhaps with striped garments, perhaps with the orange jumpsuit that we see uh, so common today. And the sentence that comes down is 50 years in prison, no parole. And before he walks in, another man comes and he pleads with the judge. He says, judge, let me go to prison for those 50 years in his place. I will substitute for him. Let me go for him. And the judge says, well, okay, very well. Take this man, this substitute, take him away to serve those 50 years. This is a simple enough uh, illustration, right? There's certain things that we need to uh, infer from this, or we need to see clearly from this. The judge would now be obligated to do what? He would be obligated to turn to the actual criminal and say, go free. You've been redeemed by the substitute. Having accepted that substitute, the judge can no longer punish that man. Right? That would be what the reformers would call of old double justice. <clears throat> and you can see the point here. Right, dear Christian? And don't get hung up in that the, the, this is stale theology. Right? This is imperative and glorious. If Christ died in my place, if Christ was a substitute in your place, if Christ redeemed the people on the cross, fully satisfying their debt to the covenant of works, then they must go free. They must go free. Christ accomplished their redemption. He is their substitute. Do you see this? Listen closely so you don't miss What's going on here? If Christ's death really is a substitutionary ransom for all humanity, then all humanity must what? They must be saved. If they're not, God is like like the judge requiring double justice. So you paid for it, but now you still need to pay for it. If Christ died for all in their place, and God also allows anyone to perish in hell, then their sins were borne by both Christ and themselves, right? You see that? 
double justice. This is a major argument that our tradition regarding uh, limited atonement uses, and it's valid. Christ's ransom payment did not fail to purchase those for whom it was paid. It is utterly disjointed to imagine otherwise, to imagine that paying for something and then not owning it. Right? Can you imagine going to the car lot and laying down your tens of thousands of dollars and not owning that car? When we see in the scriptures, they teach about the nature of the atonement, which we looked at for these past number of weeks, that it actually does redeem sinners. Actually, truly, not potentially, not hypothetically. It actually redeems sinners. We must realize its extent must match that nature. It has to match the nature. That's very important. If you insist that Christ died for the sins of every human being, and at the same time you insist that there's any human beings going to destruction for whom Christ died, right? You have a very serious conflict, conflict in your doctrine of the atonement. The reason why Reformed and Presbyterian people insist on limited atonement has both biblical and historical precedent. The substitutionary atonement, dear Christian, leads us to a limited or definite atonement. Right? The substitutionary, vicarious atonement leads us to a, a definite atonement. It is particular, it is limited, it is definite. And the nature of the atonement <clears throat> determines the extent of the atonement. Right? Christ died in the place of his people. And as a result, they, they, what? they must go free. They will go free. For the Father has elected them in Christ and he has paid their legal debts through the covenant of works as their substitute and redeemer. Praise God, that is a glorious reality. And again, this isn't just a theological, technical thing that we muse upon uh, to take up our free time. It is imperative. It is glorious, right? It's glorious. It's wonderful. The Lord redeemed you fully, completely, actually. You are saved. You are free. And brothers, sisters, I hope you see how praiseworthy and powerful and merciful our God is. How perfectly he has accomplished our salvation. Salvation is indeed the work of our triune God. Right? It's the work of the triune God. The persons of the Trinity are not in conflict with one another regarding salvation. There's perfect harmony in the Godhead, not disharmony. Our Heavenly Father's election is bound up with Christ's death and Christ's death is bound up with the Spirit's work in transforming sinful human nature. The old man in Adam, right? the old man in Adam died on the cross just as he is resurrected. A new man emerged in the spirit of holiness. The power of the Holy Spirit applies to the heart of, the, uh, to the heart of those whom God chooses exactly what happened on the cross. The flesh is crucified, it is put to death. And a new man is recreated when the power of the Spirit in the gospel saves a sinner, just like he did to you and I. When we think about Ezekiel 36, the the Old Testament reading from this morning, and it speaks of this uh, uh, as taking out the old heart and putting in a new. Isn't that a beautiful picture? God removes himself, he removes the heart of stone, he puts in a heart of flesh for his people. One that beats for him, that lives for him. It's glorious. 
It's beautiful. It's wonderful. It is a vivid description of what God does in salvation. That's what he has done for you, dear Christian. This is the sovereign work of the Spirit in the new birth. The, the recreating of the soul after the image of Christ. What Christ accomplished in his death, we have to see in his burial, in his resurrection, his ascension. What he accomplished there, the Holy Spirit applies powerfully to those called by the Father. In looking at this, this uh, catching back up and seeing the context of where we are, in total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement or definite atonement. We see these petals, these first three petals in context. Uh, and these petals are points that may be less familiar to some of you. And it's essential that you have a good handle on the interconnectedness of these truths, how they flow together, how they follow one after the other. Again, in summary, the Father chooses or decrees. The Son accomplishes or dies for those whom the Father decrees. And the Holy Spirit applies that salvation worked by Christ to the elect in harmony. The Father doesn't choose some that the the Son doesn't die for. Right? There's harmony. It is perfect, complete, and glorious. And then we come to the eye of the tulip. The eye stands for irresistible grace. In this irresistible grace, the fourth petal is salvation applied. And it is the work of the Holy Spirit in bringing a person to living repentance and saving faith in Christ Jesus as he is offered in the gospel. Irresistible grace. Sovereign, irresistible, powerful grace. There are three aspects to the work of the Spirit. We'll look at them in this order. They are this. And you have them outlined in your bulletin. First, the Father's effectual call. Father's effectual call. And then secondly, the Spirit's irresistible grace. And then thirdly, the sinner's living response of faith and repentance. The sinner's living response of faith and repentance. But first, let's look for a moment at the Father's effectual call. When the gospel is preached, those within the hearing of that gospel are called upon to come to Christ and to be saved. This is the general, or the outward call. It goes out to all. These words of the gospel fall upon the ears of all who hear it. It's general, outward. And it is heard by both the elect and the non-elect. And the Lord Jesus spoke of this in Matthew 22, verse 14, when he said, Many are called, but few are chosen. Many are called, but few are chosen. Right? And in that parable, you'll remember, a feast was prepared by the king for his son. And so the invitation went out to come and to dine throughout the land to many. It was a general call to come. Yet compared to the many who heard it, did they all come? No, they didn't. Only a few actually came to the feast to eat and to dine and to feast on the bounty thereof. And the reason that those few came was what? It was God's decree of election. Again, Jesus said, few are chosen. Now this general or outward call of the gospel is when the gospel goes forth and people are called to come to Christ. 
But this outward call is not the Father's inward, effectual call. That inward, effectual call of the Father. It goes along concurrent with the outward call. And it is powerful in ushering in and drawing in the elect to fellowship with Jesus Christ. Only the elect hear this call, right? His sheep hear his voice. Only the elect are, elect are affected by the sovereign work of the Father. We see this from several various places in Scripture. John 6, 44 uh, is one such verse where it says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. Right? No one can come to me unless what? The Father who sent me draws him. The word draws is the same word that is used uh, as if taking a sword from its sheath, drawing from the sheath. Who comes to him? Those whom the Father draws to himself. And then we see in the epistles quite often, uh, and one example is 2 Timothy 1.9 where it says, He saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, or before from all eternity is what it says. He saved us and called us to a holy calling. Right? Our calling in time was sovereignly granted to us from eternity. This isn't, again, some stale theology. This isn't uh, just something, that's, uh, something to captivate our time when we're bored. It's glorious. The creator of the universe, the God, the living God, the true and the living God chose and called and drew you to himself. Right? What a beautiful flower, right? What a beautiful savior. Look at Romans 8.30. Uh, we, we see there again, this is something similar. We see calling is that which is uniquely directed to the elect from eternity. Where it says, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So when the gospel is presented, again, remember that the unsaved are spiritually dead and deaf and blind to the external word when it is preached or read. And due to their total depravity, their hearts cannot respond in faith any more than a stuffed animal can respond to your voice. I thought for a moment of using the, the example of the Build-A-Bear. Have you guys seen these? You kid parents, yeah, Build-A-Bear. I, I think they actually do respond, don't they? Some kind of interconnectedness. But you get the point, right? A pet rock cannot respond to your voice when you talk to it. <clears throat> As Jesus said in Matthew 13, seeing they do not hear, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. But Jesus also said this in that section, Matthew 13, but blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. And then he says, to you it has been given, or has been granted, to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it has not been given, it has not been granted for them to know. And so apart from this inward, effectual call of the Father, no one can come to Christ. But with this internal drawing of the Father that internal calling of the Father, when that occur, occurs, which was determined from all eternity, it's then that the elect begin to hear 
They begin to hear things like, like they've never heard them before. They are drawn to Christ in a way that they have never known. They are called to the Father. Make no mistake, the Father's calling is effectual. It is sovereign. He indeed changes your heart and your mind in every way. This does not hang upon the free will, cooperation on the part of the sinner. Rather, it grows underneath the soil in eternal election, and it sprouts in time with the life and the heart of the one who was elected and is called. It's important for us to keep in mind as we look at these things that this effectual calling of the Father, it is accomplished in conjunction with the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit in what? In transforming the sinful, unclean heart. In some ways, the term irresistible grace is not that felicitous because um, truly no one is, uh, even the Apostle Paul is not brought dragging, uh, kicking and screaming into the kingdom. Rather, he is what? He's given a new heart. And as he's given a new heart, it responds. It flees to Christ. With joy and necessity, it must flee to Christ. Even as you, as you belong to Jesus, your soul flees to Christ. The effectual call of the Father, it is accomplished along with the work of the Holy Spirit in transforming the sinful, unclean heart. It changes it. Heart of stone is taken out and heart of flesh is put in. And that heart of flesh, by its nature, it must beat for Jesus. And this brings brings us to the second point this morning. The second point is the Spirit's irresistible grace. The Spirit's irresistible grace. It is the Holy Spirit who administers the Father's call unto life. That's what the Spirit does. The Scriptures make it perfectly plain that people are required by God to repent and to believe the Gospel. That says the word goes out as we see it in the New Testament. What is it? Repent and believe. Repent and believe. But if the human heart, the human nature is indeed in bondage to sin, how can anyone comply with the necessary terms of that conversion? How can they do so? Let's look at our New Testament reading and what we learn there. This parable of the sower. When Jesus explained this, right in Luke 8, the parable of the sower, when he explained this parable, only one of the four groups of the people bore fruit unto salvation. Listen again to what he said in Luke 8, 15. And the seed in the good ground, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart. Right? To receive the word of God so as to bring salvation, to bear uh, saving fruit, requires that the word be heard in an honest and good heart. But as we saw a number of weeks ago, Jesus himself, he calls his disciples, even his best guys, he, he said they all had evil hearts. And Jeremiah emphasizes very clearly that the heart of man is far from honest. It is far from good. Jeremiah said that the heart of man is what? Fairly good. He said it is deceitful and it is wicked. It's full of evil. And this problem is uh, present because of our own evil hearts and it reduces us to cast ourselves upon the Holy Spirit to do what we cannot do, what we would not do. 
But when we were given a new heart, that's exactly what we do. The transformation of the Holy Spirit sovereignly accomplishes that new birth. This new birth which transforms fallen nature of man, which cleanses and renews the human heart, it is totally apart from the will of man. It is solely accomplished within the domain of God's sovereign will and work. No one is ever born because they decided to be born. Right? It's an interesting thing, the different seasons of life that we have. In the season of this church, there are many babies, right? M- many beautiful, wonderful, young, covenant children. And it brings t- to mind the first birth, the physical birth that we read of in Scripture. Not one of those children came into this world by their own will. Right? It is a passive activity. We came into this world passively. We were born into it. And as a result... There's evidence and signs of birth and life. And it's the same in the spiritual realm. The true Christian is born, how? By the will and work of the Spirit, God the Holy Spirit. And then as a result of God's operation, that person goes forth. And the signs of his birth are repentance and faith. The signs of his birth are repentance and faith. Look again at um, John chapter 1. We see all these same things. John John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. John says this, "But But to all who did receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. He gave the right. Those who received him, he believed in his name. He gave the right to become children of God. Who were born, how? Not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. They're born of God. That's what the word of God says. Our new birth issuing forth and becoming children of God was not due to the will of man, but it was due to the will of God, our sovereign, gracious, powerful, triune God. It was due to the exercise of God's will in sovereign grace. Jesus Christ emphatically elaborates on this very point two chapters later in John chapter 3. Uh, We've already discussed some of these uh, comparisons of the spiritual birth and the physical birth. Right? The physical birth directs directs our thoughts towards the sovereignty uh, of the Spirit's work here. And Jesus doesn't give any paths that get there by free will. Because the will is not free. It's in bondage to its own nature. He declares plainly, John 3, chapter 8. John 3, 8. The wind blows where it wishes or wills. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. The work, this work of the Spirit is from above. It is God's work creating life where there was no life. It's interesting to notice that Jesus responds to Nicodemus there. Nicodemus, in his ignorance, he responds to him, uh, this ignorance of Nicodemus, with amazement. A few verses earlier, John chapter 3, verse 5, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And here Jesus says it's pretty clear. Uh, he says it fairly clearly when he told him this, that the new birth was of water and the Spirit. 
And you, you look at the construction of that sentence, construction of that phrase, at least in the Greek, it indicates that the water is an aspect of the Spirit's operation. And so the water is purifying or cleansing. This is what the Spirit does when He washes and purifies the sin-darkened, inky black, dirty human heart. He cleanses that. And Nicodemus should have known this. He should have recognized this. His, his flag should have gone up. The bell should have sounded. He should have seen the connections here. The operation of the Spirit among the children, among the people, among the elect. Notice how in these texts, Jesus' words are anticipated. Right, It's the sovereign Spirit's work among the chosen of God. Right, and we, There's connection between this in the Old Testament reading that we read, the same ideas of sovereign initiative, cleansing the Spirit's work, and renewing fallen humans' heart, it's being discussed. Right? Right? Listen again to Ezekiel 36.25. And listen to who is the actor and who is passive. What is God doing? He declares, I will sprinkle clean water on you. And what? And you shall be clean. From all your uh, uh, uncleanliness, or from all your filthiness, and from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. What a glorious truth that our salvation from start to finish does not depend on our own feeble, weak, and fickle efforts. It is true that the sinful heart of man cannot respond to the word of God as as God requires it. But God can transform the heart by sovereign grace, enabling it to come alive and to repent and to believe and to walk in the ways of God's commandments, His glorious, beautiful law. Galatians actually tells us it's only those who are freed from the law, that actually begin to keep it. This is the fourth of the five petals of the flower of grace. It's the Spirit's work in irresistible grace, the I. And it's irresistible because it is the sovereign work of the Spirit in recreating and in new birth. And those very words declare to us the passivity of the recipients, like a newborn child. But that passivity isn't the only story. It's not the only story. Think of the analogy again uh, of, of children, of babies, infants born into the world. Again, we have many covenant children here at Providence. And we all know this who've ever been around the birth of a child. Babies are born. They're born into the world. And when prompted to do so, sometimes by a swat on the bottom of, by the nurse, what do they do? They're born... And when prompted, they let out a cry of life. A cry of life. And soon they are nursing on the life-sustaining milk from their mothers. So also, those born of the Spirit lift their voices in repentance to their loving Father. And they nurture their faith upon the milk of the Word of God. Gloriously. What God has provided for us. And so this, this leads us to the third point. And that is the sinner's response of faith and repentance. 
The sinner's response of faith and repentance. Faith and repentance. These are the responses required by God from everyone who hears the terms of the gospel. This is what's required. These responses, though surely coming from the heart of man, they are so connected to the Father's calling and the Spirit's enabling, the Spirit's grace, that they are seen as gifts from God. Right? Gifts from God. Gifts of God. Uh, I think we looked at it a number of weeks ago, that passage from Acts. Remember Lydia. Uh, Acts chapter 16, verse 14. It shows us this powerfully and, and plainly. Acts 16, 14 says, And a certain woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond. The Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. So Paul is speaking the message of the gospel. He's an instrument of God. But it's the Lord who opens her heart to respond to that message spoken by Paul. Isn't that amazing? It's a wonderful truth. What a freeing truth. Does not depend on your delivery or your uh, expertise. Give the gospel out. The Lord will take care of the rest of it. Again, what is it that she responded to? Why did she respond to Paul's message? It was because her heart was opened by the Lord. The Lord opened her heart to respond. Irresistible grace opened the heart, and as a result, Lydia responded. Other places in the book of Acts, we see similar things. Uh, the same phenomenon is explained as the Lord granting repentance. He gives repentance, he grants it. Um, in Philippians 1.29, Paul also couches the human response of faith in the same soil of sovereign, gracious bestowal when he tells them that faith has been granted to them has been granted, has been given to them. The point is simply this, brothers and sisters. Faith and repentance are granted to us by God the same way that the heart transformation out of which they are exercised is completely a sovereign work of grace by the Spirit. The same Spirit works and wills according to the Father's plan in election and the Son securing the elect in that atonement. When we as a church, either personally, uh, uh, either in personal witness in the world or in a specific proclamation of the gospel. We're seeking boldly to make it clear there's great confidence when we do that. We should rest confidently that God's plan of calling out a people for himself, calling out a people for his name, there's great confidence that that will not fail. Will not fail. As God said to Paul in Corinth, remember, do not be afraid. Go on speaking. I am with you. I have many people in this city. Proclaim the gospel, Paul. Do not be afraid. Be bold. I will take care of the results. You do as you are called to do. And of course, it helps that we must prepare. We must pray. We must speak. We must put forth the gospel to believe if we, if we expect to see God convert the lost. God controls the ends and the means. And he has commanded for our good and for his glory that we proclaim the glorious message of the gospel. And as we do so, as we step out in faith to disciple the nations, 
in fulfillment of the Great Commission. We go with the promise that Christ will be with us in that work. Is that reason for assurance, for confidence, for boldness? You better believe it is. God will go with us. That's his promise. We, will, we, we go with the promise that Christ will be with us in that very work. But we must go knowing that the longed-for results of souls gathered in for Christ are not due to our cleverness or our hipster personalities or some catchy, flashy, or novel program that promises to attract the spiritually dead through carnal manipulation. Rather, we go with confidence. Even if it's mingled with fear and trembling, we go with confidence that we are commissioned by a mighty Savior who is intent on seeking and finding his lost lambs out in the world. And he is intent on bringing them home through the message of his gospel from the lips and loving hearts of his servants. Jars of clay though we may be, it is a treasure. The spectacular, amazing sovereign grace of our spectacular, amazing God is what has brought us here, even this morning, right, to worship, to praise, and to thank Him. That same grace drives us to the lost to declare His wondrous salvation in Christ. That same grace emboldens us in prayer to God and in witness to man because we know that salvation rests in the power and purposes of God's sovereign grace. He is the same God of grace today who saved Lydia yesterday and he continues to open hearts to respond to Paul's gospel which now falls from the lips of us, us weak, frail folks, you and I. Let's pray. Almighty Father, we Come again before you, we thank you for your power, for your grace, for your mercy, for your goodness. Lord, we thank you that you've given us a sure word. We thank you, Lord, that you will work out your will in this world. We pray for the grace to believe what we have heard and to live in ways that indeed honor you. They honor you above all. We praise you for your wonder and love and great mercy and your work in renewing your people. Lord God, we pray, help us to believe the truth that you, have, that you tell us, uh, glorious though it be, and beyond our finite minds that we are united to Christ. We are indwelt with the Holy Spirit, that we are new creations. Father, help us to live and to think and to pray in a way that brings honor to your name. Lord God, we do Pray as well that as your word goes out and has gone out, that it would have its full, powerful effect, not only here but around the world. Father, we pray this morning for our brother Don Dorman. We ask, Father, that you would give him strength. Father, we pray that you would heal what ails him. Father, we pray that you would give direction to the medical team in treating him and give them clear minds and insight to find the issues that he has, Lord, and to correct them according to your perfect will. So we thank you, Lord, for Don's faith and his friendship, the fellowship we enjoyed with him. We pray, uh, Lord, for we praise you and thank you for his love for Jesus. We pray bless him and his dear wife at this time. Lord, we pray for this congregation for all of us. Be merciful unto us. 
Provide, we pray, Lord, for our physical needs. Strengthen us spiritually as well. We ask that you would keep us from growing satisfied, keep us from being fearful, but strengthen us and conform us evermore into the image of our King, your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we praise you and thank you that we can come boldly before you. And so we do so. We ask all of these things in the name of your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.